0: Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today we're joined by Dr. Jason Hansen. Dr. Hansen is an Associate Professor of History at Furman University, South Carolina. He's also the host of History Off the Page, a podcast series that explores the history of Europe. In this episode, Dr. Hansen and I discuss some of that history. We talk about the October Revolution of 1917, about the early Bolsheviks' consolidation of power, and we ponder the counterfactual, where Joseph Stalin didn't rise to power after the death of Vladimir Lenin. We also touch on the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s, how the Balkan states developed the borders that we know today, and Dr. Hansen offers a defense of his profession from the accusation that history is but a set of lies agreed upon by men. Links to the History Off the Page podcast can be found in the description, and we definitely recommend checking it out. Professor Hansen, thank you very much for coming on to Bramcast. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Very good. So we'll start off with the October Revolution. Could you maybe give a brief explanation as to what the October Revolution was for people that don't know, and then maybe address the argument that this was the most important geopolitical event in 20th century history?
1: Well, wow. uh, I guess it, it depends what you mean by brief, because uh, obviously one could go on for several hours about this topic. Um, for those who are, are not familiar with uh, Soviet history or Russian history, basically there are two revolutions that take place in 1917. Uh, you have the uh, February or March revolution that, that happens uh, where the monarchy falls. And then Russians spend basically about six months to a year trying to figure out, okay, can we do something like a liberal democracy? And of course, there are various uh, actors that are trying to um, further the revolution. Uh, there's a lot of parallels to the French Revolution. Uh, so basically, um, you have several sort of stops and goes. It's it's interesting. We usually think about the revolution as happening in October, uh, red October. This is the big event uh, where the Bolsheviks seize power. But there's a, kind of a, a pre-revolution that happens in August that fails where Lenin is actually saying don't do the revolution. Uh, and then after that, um, he's arrested, or uh, many of the uh, Bolsheviks are arrested. Um, and then there's kind of a counter-revolution that happens uh, with a guy named Lars Kornilov and uh, Alex Kerensky, who was the um, the uh, prime minister of Russia at the time. Uh, then you uh, you have the the Bolshevik Revolution in October, which is the one that gets celebrated. It seems like this is kind of Marx's prediction uh, about the the you know dictatorship of the proletariat finally becoming reality. Uh, And then it takes basically about three or four years for that revolution to play out in various stages. Um, Why is this the the biggest revolution, the most important event, you said, in political history in the 20th century? One of the interesting things about it is that the Bolshevik revolution wasn't supposed to be just about Russia. It was supposed to be about the beginning of of this kind of, again, this this class-based revolution that was supposed to happen for Uh, or that Europeans were thinking about happening for about 70 years or so. Uh, And so this this seems like not the end of history, but the beginning of a new historical moment. And there's actually a series of revolutions that happens in other places, like Hungary. Uh, In Munich, for example, there's also one. There's a failed revolution in Berlin. So there's a kind of ripple effect to this that lasts throughout the century. I guess another way to think about it is that this creates these sort of uh, major struggles about what the future will look like, between capitalism and democracy, liberalism on the one hand, and then communism uh, on the other. So uh, this, I don't, I don't know how well this answers your question because it's a it's a big question. Uh, there's a lot of different ways we could dissect it, maybe. Uh, but it, it's certainly the 20th century. One could argue is this battle between uh, liberalism and communism.
0: Absolutely. So. Did the Bolsheviks have a majority of the support of the Russian Revolution when they seized power from the unelected provisional government? So this is, uh, again, a great question of
1: history. There's a lot of debate about it. uh, But in my interpretation and many scholars, the answer would actually be no. Uh, We've moved from this idea of the Russian Revolution being this this moment when the the workers all get together and rise up and the kind of um, classic idea of what this revolution was supposed to look like to one that is much more decentered, And so in my interpretation, at least, it seems like there were a lot of different actors that were uh, rebelling or revolting for different reasons. And so what the Bolsheviks do that is so uh, amazing is they find out tactically how to approach which group, how to create alliances in order to further their means uh, or to further their goals. So, for example, um, we talk about the Bolsheviks, but there are other Marxist parties in Russia in that period. There's a, another kind of group called the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks uh, have very similar kind of ideological goals as the Bolsheviks, but they they are much more moderate. They want to work in some cases within the system. Uh, and so they're they're kind of rivals on the socialist uh, side of the equation. You also have a socialist revolutionary party that has its own kind of ideas about you know what this revolution should look like. And at times they all work together. At times they work within the Soviets or at times they work within, the various uh, kind of worker militias set up to uh, to kind of protect the revolution. And at other, t- so at times, the Bolsheviks are very good about using them to help legitimate the revolution and further the revolution. Um, at other times, the Bolsheviks turn on them. So for example, there's a constituent assembly in uh, early 1918. It's supposed to write a constitution and many of the the liberal and more moderate socialist parties think this is the moment that we're going to be able to put our stamp on the revolution and kind of take it back, if you will, from the Bolsheviks. And what ends up happening is the Bolsheviks do some uh, machinations, they do some some politicking, uh, there's a, a bill of workers' rights that basically is voted down, and they use that as an excuse to close the uh, constituent assembly. I know I'm going over a lot of kind of big picture to small picture, uh, there's a lot more in the podcast that kind of helps address this. The other group that I would say that Lenin is brilliant about allying with, is the um, the peasantry. The peasantry in Russia in 1917 isn't really concerned with issues of law, they're not concerned so much with uh, questions of workers and class and things like that, but they really want the war to end and they really want land. They're tired of of uh, what they feel is being exploited by the big landowners. And so part of Lenin's genius is to say when the revolution happens, I'm just going to kind of let them do their thing. You know, if they want to take land from the landowners, that's fine, we're not going to stand in the way. And so, you know, a really important part of of the Russian revolution, again, as I said, is the the idea that it's not just one group that's overthrowing the the, um, provisional government. It's a variety of actors that form these kind of temporary alliances. And so part of the Bolshevik's genius is knowing when do you allow those people freedom of action, and then when do you turn on them?
0: Of course. So, The Bolsheviks and the USSR inevitably developed into a one-party state. But would I be correct in saying that Marxist-Leninism in Lenin's interpretation didn't intend for that because, you know, he went into the coalition with the left social revolutionaries, but they didn't seem disappointed that they did end up in a one-party state. And subsequently, every other Marxist-Leninist country was also a one-party state. Could you explain how um, they changed from, you know, deciding when to ally with other Marxist groups versus solely um, going for the one party? Sure. Part of
1: it is is just the, the being a realist and looking at the situation on the ground and saying, okay, I know as a, as a good Bolshevik that the peasants are the enemy, they can't be trusted, but circumstances are such that I don't have time to deal with them right now. So part of it is just tactical. Um, the other thing is that Lenin believed in something called democratic centralism. And democratic centralism was the idea that there was room for discussion within the party, within the party, of various uh, topics, various sort of approaches. How quickly do we want to transition to communism? How you know? How much do we need to delay it? How do we win the civil war? Uh, things like that. And so you had this this group. Uh, originally, it was called Sovnarkom. Then it's later on called the Politburo, uh, and and basically these are the the top members of the Bolshevik Party who are debating these ideas. It's kind of like an executive. Committee. Uh, the idea is that legitimately, Bolsheviks should be able to disagree with each other. And they should say, you know, should we have collectivization of agriculture? Some people are, are for doing it as quickly as possible. Some people were uh, sort of resistant to it or said, you know, let's take our time uh, doing this. Nikolai Bukharin is uh, probably the major figure uh, associated with that. Um, so, but the idea is that you have these legitimate debates and, and then, you know, then you implement whatever the party. Uh, has decided through this executive committee. So Lenin, Lenin's vision was not uh, this absolute dictatorship, as as you kind of say. Although in practice he has an enormous amount of influence, and so you know when they meet, they have these arguments, these disagreements. Lenin's side doesn't always win, but it it often wins because he's such an, a pivotal figure, uh, especially the further you go in the revolution. Um, We can say, too, that especially for those of you who are not so familiar with Soviet history, there is a difference between Lenin's Russia or Lenin's Soviet Union of 1917 and 18 and Stalin's Soviet Union of the 1930s. Stalin will take that idea of democratic centralism and will transform it into sort of a one-man dictatorship. The trappings are still there. There still is a Politburo. They still have these discussions. But Stalin makes pretty clear, uh, especially after 1934, that whatever his opinion is, is what should be followed.
0: Yeah, that's a great point because it's very free, you know, especially in universities, the proportion of people that would identify as Marxist is probably a lot larger than broader society. Marxist-Leninism is also a very common thing. Trotskyism probably be the most and Maoist. Yet nobody calls himself, very few at least, a Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist. So maybe could you talk about um, how Stalin changed the USSR um, when he came to power and how history might have changed if one of the other potential successors, Trotsky, um, Bukharin, Zinoviev, took, would have taken over. So it's always dangerous to speculate
1: the kind of counterfactual uh, what if, but uh, certainly one of the things that Stalin does is, again, as I said, he kind of centralizes power mostly in himself. And one of the key moments that happens with that is around this policy of collectivization in the early 30s. Uh, Basically, Stalin says, okay, the peasants are the enemy. Uh, We need to put them onto collective farms. We need to kind of make them into a kind of agricultural worker so that they fit within the Soviet system. And basically, collectivization turns out to be a disaster. They're collecting a lot of grain uh, from people, especially in places like Ukraine. Uh, it, It becomes enormously inefficient. They, they fail to uh, get as, as much grain as they want. Uh, and so it provokes a kind of reaction among especially the lower members uh, of the of the party bureaucracy who say, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe this is a mistake. Um, Stalin, basically, there's a, a guy named Rykov who writes a, a manifesto and, and says, look, this is a mistake, I'm here on the ground, let me lay it out for you in 200 pages. Uh, Stalin reacts to that and says, this guy is you know, going out on his own, he's contradicting the party. And he wants him condemned to death. And so they have basically a meeting of the Politburo. And even though all these guys by this point are supporters of Stalin, uh, they do not agree to, uh, to have him killed. And the reason for that is they say this guy, Ryutin, is an old Bolshevik. We you know, we don't agree with him. We want him punished. But he was with us on the front lines before it was you know, kind of popular to do so. At the very least, like we should at least allow him to live. Right. At, at the very least, he's earned that. Stalin reacts to this by saying, look, it's not enough to be loyal to me. It's not enough to, to say, okay, you know, I, I'm going to allow you to set the course, you know, we'll follow you. But he he demands absolute loyalty. He demands this sense of fidelity that, that you no longer have the ability to make up your own mind about things. And so to kind of carry this through, in 1934, there is an assassination of the leader of the Leningrad branch of the Communist Party, a guy named Sergei Kirov, and Stalin uses this as an excuse to launch a series of purges. So they start off by saying, okay, who killed him, who was involved, who knew him, and they build out from that through the Secret Service, through the NKVD, they basically build out a series of trials, you know, once they arrest people, okay, who do you know, Uh, you know, and then they just continue it further and further. One of the big crimes by the times you get to 1936 or 37 involved with these things are called the Great Purges. One of the crimes is not that you were involved in it, but that you should have known that other people that were around you were involved. So if you had a friend, uh, I work at a university. If I had a colleague who perhaps was condemned or accused of of being a part of this, the fact that I didn't call them out, the fact that I I should have known um, and didn't do anything, that in itself becomes a crime. And so, Stalinism is not just the idea of, okay, there's a dictatorship, uh, Stalin's word is, is essentially the, the equivalent of law, but there's a sense of, of absolute loyalty, a sense that, that I need to be actively trying to anticipate what the leader says. I need to be actively trying to defend or protect the, the leader. Um, and I think that's one of the scariest elements of Stalinism. Uh, Stalin is obviously uh, you know, responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people in the 20th century, I think one of the things that we forget is that by the time you get to the great purges and again, the mid to late 1930s, the primary victims are not uh, intelligentsia, are not dissidents, are not uh, priests or, you know, people that might've been opposed to communism. It's his most loyal followers. It's the members of the communist party itself who become the primary victims. And so I guess to bring this back to what you asked about at the beginning, why, is, or why are very few people calling themselves kind of Stalinist today? It's because it's this sense of absolute power where, uh, again, your, your followers are not just following you because they agree with you. They're following you because they have no autonomy, no voice of their own, no agency. I, I just would add to that very quickly that one of the really interesting developments in the last maybe four or five years is that in Russia itself today, there has been a rehabilitation of Stalin, uh, kind of moving away from this model of, Stalin as the totalitarian dictator who corrupted communism, corrupted uh, Marxist-Leninism, but but moving towards the idea of Stalin as the great patriotic father from World War II. Um, And it's it's really fascinating to see the way that, at least within Russian society, the history itself is being reworked and Stalin is being uh, rehabilitated to some extent.
0: Maybe we could focus on that more. I hadn't planned to, but it's a great point. Putin seems to have a philosophy of he sees Russia as a great continuum where he'll focus on the, the greatness of Imperial Russia and he'll focus on the greatness of the USSR and yet leave out the part where, you know, the huge um, gulf between those two um, periods in Russian history and, you know, they didn't get on, they hated each other. What would your analysis be of such a reading of history that sees Russia as one great continuum despite the fragment parts of Russia being so diametrically opposed to one another in country, you know, their philosophy.
1: I think especially um, for, for those uh, like myself who lived through these events in the late 80s, early 90s, it, it kind of boggles our minds to, to think, as you say, that there's a continuum and what happened to the, the, the part where uh, obviously communism fell, um, you know, what, what happened to the part where obviously the, the Bolsheviks replaced uh, the imperial monarchy? Um, I think one of the things that we in the West tend to miss is that for Russians, living through the downfall of communism was not experienced as just, okay, the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia fell apart, Uh, you know, our country went from being a global power to being basically um, a sort of second-rate power at best, but for a lot of Russians, they experienced this moment as Russia seceding or, or, you know, emerging, if you will, from the cocoon of the Soviet Union. So why was, in this reading, why was the Soviet Union such a great time? Why was it so strong? Well, it was because Russia was there. And, and how should we understand the events of the late 80s and 90s? It's not that, that Russia or the Soviet Union collapses. It's that, again, Russia emerges from the yoke of the Soviet Union and is now ready to step into modern times and is now ready to assert itself on behalf of Russians. So I think one of the, the things that we don't want to do is to look at Putin as kind of a caricature, and, and sort of assume that because he's espousing some of these political points that they're they're just kind of the invention of a madman or, or something like that. Um, within Russia itself, there is a lot of of enthusiasm for Russian history. There's, there's a lot of pride in Russian history and a feeling that Russia has always been a great power, and there's no point in its history where it, it ever really stopped being a great power. And so I think this is one of the things that, that frustrates Russians a lot, especially as they look at the politics of the late 90s, early 2000s. When you get to a a war in Yugoslavia, for example, why is it that the United States and to some extent the EU can say, you know, this this conflict in in Yugoslavia, the Serbs are to blame, you know, we're going to impose uh, our kind of interpretation on this, Uh, we're going to bomb Serbia to stop the war in Kosovo. Russia it doesn't really matter what you think about this. Right, your your opinion is is kind of ancillary to it. Um, the other great event, of course, is the Iraq War in two thousand three, where the United States uh, and to some extent some of its allies, Britain, obviously, um, kind of say we want this regime change. We're going to drive it through, and the the Russians don't really get consulted on it, or they don't feel like they're kind of treated equally. Um, so again, from the Russian mindset, if if you're trying to understand. What's happened over the last twenty or thirty years, it's a very different story uh, than it is in the West. Now, there are some issues that obviously come up, especially with capitalism and the transition there. But in terms of of the power and the kind of glory of russia, it's it's a fairly widespread um, kind of sentiment there
0: you mentioned it just in in your answer the the war in Yugoslavia. And as I believe, um you you've a research interest in Serbia at the moment. So maybe could we talk about or could you answer two and a half decades on from the NATO intervention in the Yugoslav wars? How should we look back on that period of history?
1: I um, I think it's one of the most consequential moments in the sort of end of the 20th century and really the beginning of the 21st century um, in terms of, of European politics and, and society. It's hard to see what's going on in Ukraine right now and not see echoes of what happened to some extent in the 1990s uh, in Yugoslavia. Uh, For those of your listeners who aren't familiar with the history of it, basically, Yugoslavia was a very successful uh, communist country. Uh, There were some ethnic divisions underneath the kind of surface. Um, The communist dictator Joseph Tito had tried to uh, kind of eliminate these and had, had banned kind of practices of nationalism and tried to encourage the idea of brotherhood. And then as communism fell apart in Eastern Europe in the mid to late 1980s, nationalism hit Yugoslavia and basically tore the country uh, apart. And so you get a series of wars, uh, some very short, some very long. Um, In Slovenia in 1991, there's like a 10-day war. It doesn't really seem to to be very dramatic. The the, um, uh, Serbs were were kind of fine with the idea of allowing uh, the Slovenes to go. Uh, but when you get to places like Croatia and Bosnia, where you have large ethnic Serbian populations, this equation gets to be much more complicated. Um, to vastly oversimplify things, basically Croatia secedes from Yugoslavia, and the the kind of Serb areas of Croatia then tried to secede from Croatia. So you get this kind of uh, big war going on. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating about it is how quickly people nationalized or ethnicized to the point where they could kill their neighbors Um, there are cities in bosnia for example where the neighbors just kind of one day turn on each other and and, uh, just start attacking each other Um, there's a famous soccer match between dinamo zagreb and red star belgrade where the fans just it's a soccer match but the fans interpret it as a national conflict they start fighting with each other in the stands they spill out into the stadium and they uh, they actually there's a famous photo you can find online of a, a Croatian player kicking a policeman um, in the, kind of on the pitch in the middle of the game. Um, so all of a sudden these these national identities get or ethnic identities get kind of radicalized and it leads to um, to a lot of violence uh, and it, it creates a huge problem on many levels. Obviously for the people experiencing it, uh, it it's it's very difficult. Um, you go to a place like Sarajevo today. There's still a lot of memory. Uh, There's still even, um, in some cases, actual destroyed buildings from the war uh, that you can see. The city of Mostar, uh, it's only within the last maybe four or five years that they've really begun to erase a lot of the the burned out buildings, uh, the bullet holes and things like that. So you have a lot of suffering going on there on the ground. Um, For people in the West, you also have this idea of how do we stop violence? So it it presents the challenge of peacekeeping. And one of the the big kind of um, parallels to the present-day situation is we see this conflict, we see this violence on the ground in Ukraine, but who is really willing to step in and intervene in order to try to stop it, right? There's not really a lot of appetite in the West for doing that, and some of that comes back to uh, the war in uh, Yugoslavia. Um, One of the most tragic moments of the war is there is a town called... um, Srebrenica, which is in the kind of um, countryside, it's very close to Serbia itself, and there was a large uh, Muslim population uh, that that came to Srebrenica and was kind of living in this this one town. They're surrounded in the countryside by ethnic Serbs. Uh, basically, the um, the United Nations comes in uh, for reasons that, that are complicated. We can get into later maybe, uh, but the United Nations comes in and says, "Look, this is a civilian population." We'll, we'll take away their weapons, so they're not going to be defensible, but we will protect you. We will send in United Nations soldiers to, to keep the peace, and you know, armies can fight it out, but its civilians should be off limits. What ends up happening is that the uh, Serb soldiers use that, um, the Bosnian Serb soldiers use that, uh, those soldiers as basically hostages. And in the end of the war in 1995, as they're moving towards a peace deal, uh, basically they, um, they surround the town. They will um, basically allow the U.N. soldiers to leave the battalion from the Netherlands um, and they will take all the men and boys, about 8000 of them out into the countryside and they will execute them. So we see the kind of. Ethnic cleansing actions that we've seen in places like Bucha in Ukraine today uh, in other cities, and there's probably more that we don't even know about where this idea of ethnicizing territory leads to violence. So. Again, one of the big issues is how do we stop that? Um, you know, doing it on the ground is difficult to begin with, and the, the international community has a poor track record, uh, which which we can trace back to Yugoslavia.
0: Absolutely. We could go in very much deep into the Yugoslav wars, but unfortunately we don't have time. But one more question about Yugoslavia that I think uh, maybe readers of the history that wouldn't be very familiar with the Balkan states um, might ask, and that is is a very disjoint um, borders between um, the different countries in in the Balkans. Um it almost seems gerrymandered if one were to do it, or as though uh, an imperial like very different from the imperialist um, borders in Africa where they just drew lines on a map. What caused this intermingling of and this mixing of nationalities such that it um it brought this very disjoint border system? Yeah, a big part of it actually goes
1: back to the sort of Ottoman conquest. Um, and when the Ottomans come in, basically, they are obviously Muslims. Uh, they will drive the Eastern Orthodox Christian community, which we would tend to call Serbs today, it drives them basically closer and closer to Austria, which is the closest sort of um, Austria-Hungary, let me not say Austria-Hungary, that'll confuse people, to to what is Hungary, and then Hungary kind of also gets kind of subsumed. So Austria becomes, uh, in 1527, basically there's a battle called Mohawks, and and Austria will unite the two crowns. Uh, But basically, it's the push of the Ottoman Turks coming into uh, basically the Balkans that that pushes those ethnic Serbs closer to the uh, the Croatian lines or to the Catholic lines uh, because the nationalities are, it's a little bit complicated as to how nationalistic people felt at this time. Religion is probably much more important. Um, Once you have the Ottoman Empire in place, the Ottoman Empire is an empire that practices tolerance. There are um, some benefits to converting to Islam. Uh, so you will see some of that, right? People that are slaves can become free if they convert to Islam. But Christians and Jews were tolerated. They were uh, considered peoples of the book. Uh, the idea was eventually maybe they would they would get uh, the right idea in follow uh, Muhammad. But basically, um, they're tolerated. And so these communities persist. You get some that convert to Islam, and you get some that, that never do. Uh, and so this creates some interesting moments when you have this ethnic reshuffling going on not just in the 1990s, but also during World War II, where some of the nationalists will look at Bosniaks, for example, Bosnian Muslims and say, you guys, ethnically speaking, there is no such thing as a Bosniak, you're just a a Serb, who is a practicing Muslim, or you are a Croat, who is a practicing Muslim. And so basically, you know, as they're carrying out these campaigns, as they're uh, carrying out uh, instances of, of ethnic cleansing, it, it can be very complicated in terms of who's on what side and, and how do we interpret these things. Um, but to, to again, to make a long story short, it goes back basically to the Ottoman conquest.
0: Very good. Um, Misha Glennie had a great book on the long history of the Balkans since the 1800s and man is it a read. Uh, but I guess we'll, f- we'll finish up now with the last couple of questions. Um, not on historical fact, but nevertheless related to history. Napoleon said that history is a set of lies agreed upon by men. How might you defend your profession from that accusation?
1: So uh, in order to lie, you have to know that what you're saying is not true. Right? If, if you are um, explaining what you believe to have happened, then, then first of all, that's not a lie. Uh, I say that because part of an important part of the historical profession is the idea of ethics. The idea that uh, if I'm looking at the past, yes, there's different ways to interpret various events. Was Caesar assassinated? Was Brutus a, a freedom fighter? Uh, you know, you can have your opinion on it. I can have my opinion. You know, you're, you're broadcasting from Dublin right now. If we talked about the IRA and the troubles, sure, a lot of different you know uh, opinions on that. Um, I think the key thing for us as historians is that we try to approach the subjects objectively Uh, If we see that the facts are leading in a different direction than what our theories are, like a good scientist, you have to sort of change your understanding of it. So there is this sort of basic objectivity that I think gets kind of ignored sometimes by uh, postmodernists. Hayden White, of course, being the big name, you know, oh, isn't all history just kind of making things up and believing whatever you want to believe? Well, you know, we have a process. We do look at evidence. And as long as you're approaching that with an objective mindset, rather than thinking, you know, I have this kind of political point I want to make, I'm I'm lawyer-like, then I I think that's a key part of it. Um, The other thing I would say about the historical profession is that you don't just look for evidence that supports your point of view, you try to corroborate that evidence, you try to rationalize that evidence, and and so even though I just kind of knocked lawyers, it is kind of lawyer-like in the sense that you're interrogating a witness and you want to try to find a way to make it believable. And so even if you are a, an attorney, um, if you're a lawyer, you, the witness is on your side, you still need to test that witness to find out if they're believable. And so one of the really interesting things about history, to, to, one of the reasons that I love the discipline so much, is that there's a kind of epistemological value to it. How do we know about anything that we have not directly experienced before? Right? How do you know that World War II happened? You can't know because you didn't directly experience it. So history is about trying to recover that and trying to go back and say, okay, how do we know what to believe is true? And then again, it's all these sort of processes to, to try to determine that. Um, so I, I get the postmodernist argument and it's kind of funny that you've had Napoleon now being the voice of postmodernism. Uh, but I, to my mind, when history is done correctly, when it's done objectively, we may not you know, know everything to 100% certainty, but there's certainly a level of believability, a scale, if you will, and I would say that that's what historians do: is we we help try to answer those questions about what can be believed uh, versus what is is not sure, what is sort of speculation.
0: A very good defense. Um, last question: There's been a meme on the internet lately of um, that every man thinks about the Roman Empire daily. Now I can testify to the fact that. Through my case, I don't know if it's true in your case, but nevertheless, from that meme, I posed the question What do you think? What topic do you think about every single day?
1: Every single day, Ooh. um, that is that is a good topic, uh, that is a great question. Um, I have to say, so I teach at a liberal arts university, which means that we're, we're fairly small and I have to teach classes on a variety of different topics, uh, and subjects and time periods, so. Right now, I'm teaching medieval history, I'm teaching a history of soccer, or association football, as you all might call it. Uh, I'm teaching a, his, a class on podcasting right now, and then also on Russian history. Uh, so my mind is kind of pulled all over uh, Europe in, in centuries and, and in terms of geographies. Um, so it's a great question. What, what history do I think about constantly? Um, I guess the closest that I could come back to that to answer it is to say I think about fascism. Uh, and the rise of fascism in Nazi Germany, and also in Italy as well, uh, which also uh, often frequently gets left out. And I say that um, in part because we're living through a, a period of time of uncertainty. Um, I grew up in in basically uh, the 1980s. You know, I saw the fall of communism, uh, the fall of apartheid in South Africa, Israeli-Palestinian peace. Uh, and the world that I thought that I was entering was one where we knew what it would look like. We knew democracy, capitalism, liberalism, all those had triumphed. We had a pretty good idea of what to expect, we thought. And we have now come into a place where there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, A lot of sort of traditional structures and institutions think about something, not just in terms of politics, but the media, right? Do we trust the media today? Um, Just all these institutions are, are kind of, there's an uncertainty about their future. And so the closest parallel to that to me as a historian, is the 1920s, when you're coming out of World War I, when you have the impact of modernity and technology and people are rethinking things like sexuality, they're rethinking uh, gender roles to some extent, uh, you have kind of a kind of new wave of capitalism and commercialization going on. Uh, so there's all these different cultural phenomenon going on, obviously the breakdown of the war, loss of faith because of, of the big destruction from, from uh, the, the war itself, so I think about that today sometimes and wondering how did we get here and, and what's going to follow from it? Um, I know historians are very bad at making predictions, so I'm, I'm not gonna offer one, but I would say that, that history, one of the reasons maybe that, that people think about the Roman empire every day, or in my case, the 1920s, is that we've kind of been here before in some cases, in some respects, and history offers us a way of Understanding this moment and putting into it a con, putting it into a context, and and kind of thinking about, okay, we've been here before. I, I know that, you know, there's things I'm, i have anxiety about, but there's also things that I I can feel will work out okay. Um, there's a great line from uh, this 19, I think it's 1998 movie uh, Shakespeare in Love, which might seem an odd thing to bring up right now, um, but the uh, the owner of the play, the play is always falling apart. There's all these kind of disasters going on and they're, they're, you know, torture him and maybe kill him. And he always comes back and he says, it, it, don't worry, it'll work out. And they say, well, how do you know that? And he says, I don't know. It's a mystery. So I guess history to me feels somewhat like that, right? I, I don't know how it's going to work out, uh, but I, I feel comfort by studying history and understanding some of the processes involved in it.
0: Very good. an optimistic outlook. So um, not to get too um, cheesy with the quotes, but you're unlike Joyce in that history is not a nightmare from which you're trying to awaken. But um, Professor Jason Hansen, it was a pleasure having you on Bramcast. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you much for inviting me, Stephen. It was a pleasure and uh, good luck with your podcast.
0: That was our discussion with Dr. Jason Hansen. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.